Take your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. And this morning we intend to look at verses 11 through 24. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. I don't know about you, but throughout this time of the last year and a bit, I have felt weary. And it certainly is a physical weariness, but I think a bigger part of that is a mental and spiritual weariness. At a time when we as believers in Jesus Christ, who trust or should trust in the sovereign God of the universe, who have the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should have come together We are exposed during this time as perhaps more divided than we've ever been, at least here in Canada and perhaps in North America. We as humans have an uncanny ability to make everything about us. Give us a situation, give us a set of circumstances, and we will find a way inevitably and invariably to make it all about us. And we have certainly done that during COVID. And as individuals who should not be making things about us as believers in Jesus Christ, we have, by and large, made it about us. What we are called to is humility. And as our brother Tim Keller has defined humility, humility is not thinking less about ourselves, but it's thinking about ourselves less. I'm here to again remind you this morning, as always, life is not about you and it's not about me. We are not in control. We are not behind the wheel. God is in control and we are simply here to bring honor and glory to him. And what freedom there is in that. We understand and recognize that our circumstances are the way they are by the hand of a graciously sovereign God. We understand the situation that we are in comes by his good and gracious hand. All gifts, every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. When we believe that, what freedom there is in life. And yet what what a trap it is to believe that we are in control and that life is about us and being the way that we want it to be. How restrictive that is. And yet that is how we live too often. And so Paul wants to remind us this morning about humility. And I hope we see that from the passage before us. So follow along if you would as I read Romans 11 verses 11 through 24. So I asked, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall or better fall away entirely? Is God done with them? By no means, absolutely not. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. 
For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who are, have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is the word of God. As we have noted, Paul is writing to a church that is divided. Arguably not as divided, perhaps, as the church at Corinth or some other churches that Paul has written to. But there is a division here in the church in Rome. Their division, in similar fashion to some divisions in our culture today, was an ethnic division, a division between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had always presumed that because they were Jewish, simply because of their physical lineage, that they were special, that they were different, that they were, in fact, above non-Jews. They were God's chosen people. They could trace their lineage back to Abraham, and therefore, they had an exalted position. And they, no doubt responded that way, in arrogance and in pride, again making it about themselves. Conversely, or similarly, I should say, the Gentiles were doing the same thing. They were sort of rubbing it into the Jews' faces that God had rejected them as a nation because of their stubbornness and sin and rebellion and rejection of Jesus Christ. The Gentiles now were recipients of the promises given to the nation of Israel and that they, in fact, were better than the Jews. Add in that the Jews were expelled from the city of Rome around AD 49 and only allowed back in about three years before Paul writes this letter to the church at Rome, and you have a church that is struggling through these ethnic realities. And so Paul writes to them, and as we saw last Sunday, there is always a remnant that God will save. But the question remains, okay, Paul, there's a remnant, but doesn't that mean even with the small remnant, the minority of Jews that come to faith in Christ, that God is done with the Jews and now he's moved on to bigger and better things? And it is to this that Paul turns his and our attention. There are two things then in this passage that ought to produce in us humility. A recognition that life is not about us, and an acceptance and submission to the fact that life is about God. In 11 through 16, we find in the first place that God's plan 
produces humility. God has a plan. It is rarely the same as ours. And we oftentimes misunderstand and misinterpret God's plan, but God has a plan nonetheless. And that plan never fails. So we find then in the first part of verse 11 that God always keeps his promises. We have another question, hypothetical, and then another response. Paul's already used this response seven or eight times in this letter. He's going to use it again. So he asks, is God done with the nation of Israel? After all of their history, bringing them out of Egypt, establishing them as a nation in the land of Canaan, and then two um, captivities, one to Assyrian, one to Babylon, and now currently living under Roman rule, and now a final rejection of the Messiah, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Are, is God done with them? Is he, is he done and the promises no longer apply to Israel, and now they've been transferred over to the Gentiles? And so Paul asks that, answers the, asks that question, then answers it emphatically, no. Now he's going to expand on that next Sunday when we look at verses 25 through, I believe, 32. But for now, he makes the emphatic statement, no. Our God is a promise-making God, but he is also a promise-keeping God. And the promises that he has made to Israel, he will fulfill. They have stumbled. Paul will say in other places and has already said in this letter that Jesus is to the, to the Jews a stumbling block. They get right up to Jesus and then, then they trip over him. They, they, they don't accept him as their Messiah. And yet they have not fallen away entirely. God still has a plan, a future plan for the nation of Israel, Israel nationally. And he's going to talk about that, especially as we get into verse 26, 25 and 26 uh, next week. But for now, he simply says, no, God made promises and he's going to keep those promises. But in the middle of what we're experiencing right now, what Paul was experiencing then, so why then are there so few Jews that are a part of this plan seemingly right now? And note, God always has a plan. Second half of verse 11, Paul says two things. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, and this has the effect of making Israel jealous. So God's rejection of the Jews has led to the acceptance of the Gentiles. This is a beautiful thing. Not a denial of the promises of God, but a more full expression of the promises of God. That the promises given to the nation of Israel have now been expanded to and applied to non-Jews. Of course, that's always been the case. Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan down throughout Israeli history. We noted even this morning from our Bible reading plan in the book of Joshua that Rahab, Gentile, part of the city of Jericho, is spared and not only becomes part of the nation of Israel, part of the people of God, but she's actually part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so down throughout history, God has always included the Gentiles, but now there's been a bit of a shift from majority Jew, minority Gentile to majority Gentile, minority Jew. But that is a blessing, not something for the Gentiles then to get high on and say, so we're better than the Jews. That's not the point. The point is instead to thank God for his amazing mercy and grace. But also it's intended to make Israel jealous. Hey, I thought these promises were just for us. No, they were never just for you. But if you want in on these promises, it's the same entry point as it is for Gentiles. It is by faith and faith alone. You don't get special treatment just because 
you're Jewish. Notice then that Paul picks up on that in verses 13 and 14 saying, he's speaking to the Gentiles. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. But note even Paul in line with God's plan, he doesn't have ulterior motives. He doesn't go and tell the Gentiles about Jesus and then, yeah, 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 as Gentiles believe, that's fine, but I'm really after the Jews. But he does say, how amazing is it that God's promises have been extended to non-Jews, and then part of his hope is that as the Jews look at those promises being extended to non-Jews, they might also say, now how do I get in on that? And this is what he has written up, to the, up in the letter up to this point. He's tried to establish the fact that whether Jewish or Gentile, what matters is we're all sinners equally before a thrice holy God, and the only solution is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so God's rejection of Israel as a nation has led to his acceptance of non-Jews as a people, and what a beautiful thing that is, all part of God's plan. But notice there's even more in verses 12 and 15. God's plan is always best. God is still at work doing even more than we could ask or think above what we could even understand. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their future means riches, uh, failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And if their rejection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? What a beautiful thing that God can take even our failures and make something of it. And Israel failed, as we do as sinners before a thrice holy God. And God took their failure and turned it into riches for non-Jews. God took their rebellion and their sin and their rejection of him, and he turned it into a message of hope and healing and redemption and reconciliation for everyone, not just Jews. But then Paul's point is, so if their rejection led to this much grace and mercy, how much more will their inclusion mean? And he's going to get to that starting in verse 25. What amazing God's plan, how he's worked down through history, always has a plan, and his plan is always best. And we note then that his plan cannot and will not fail. Notice verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul uses an illustration that maybe we don't understand as much, but that his audience would have, under the Old Testament uh, covenant dental system, when you first harvested anything, you were to bring the first fruits thereof as an offering to God as both a means of thanking him and showing your gratitude for the bounty that he supplied, but also as a way of showing your trust because if you give your best and your first to God, that means you are trusting him to provide more. All of these things are part of the Old Testament system. And the assumption is then that if God accepts the first and declares that holy, then the rest is also declared holy. And Paul's point then is, the people of God, starting with Adam, no doubt, but certainly Paul perhaps has in mind Abraham and his faith, which he has alluded to in chapters 4 and 5, that one people of God has always been, will always be, as he reminded us last week, and will continue to be into the future. He is saving people. He is showing his grace and mercy to people and building that family of God. He has always done that, and he will continue to do that. 
And so even our sinfulness, even our rejection of him cannot stop or thwart his plan because his grace is always greater than our sin. Light is always greater than darkness. Love is always more powerful than hate. And so God's plan will not fail. And so we should be humble based on that fact. God's plan ought to produce in us humility. They have questions about the division that exists in their church. And Paul continually answers them with the character and the goodness of God to say that it's about God's plan and not ours. We want to control things. We want things to be our way. We want people to listen to us. We want our opinions to be at the forefront. We want our preferences to be listened to. And so during this time, as I mentioned, when we should have come together in, much, in a much greater way and focused on, proclaimed and modeled the good news of Jesus Christ, that although we are great sinners, there's a great Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. Instead, we became exposed as individuals who really only care about our chunk of the territory, our piece of the pie, and our stuff. And this is abhorrent and antithetical to the gospel. It's not about our plan, it's about his plan, God's plan always is best and will never fail. We note then in verses 17 through 22 that God's actions ought to produce humility in us. Now Paul's going to use an extended analogy, an extended metaphor of, of an olive tree. And some people have said, well, Paul obviously was a city boy because he has no clue when it comes to agriculture. And, and there's a couple things at least that they point to. No one goes out and takes a wild olive branch and grafts it into a cultivated olive tree, that's the reverse of what you would do. Conversely, or, or subsequently to that, you would also then not take a branch, cut it off, allow it to wither and die, and then attempt to graft it back in at some later point in the future. It's not going to revive, it's dead. But don't read too much into this analogy. Paul's not ultimately talking about agriculture, but he's talking about our relationship with the people of God under the old covenant. And so follow along with me, if you would, to, to see this fleshed out. Notice in verse 17, first of all then, that God alone is the one who saves. But if some of the branches were broken off, Paul has alluded to this back in verse 7, where he says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. It is true that in Paul's day, some of the Jews did not believe and so some of those branches were broken off. Notice his use of the word some because he is a Jew and he is still part of the people of God, the family of God, the tree of God, if we can use the olive tree as that analogy. But some of those branches were broken off and Paul grants that. God is in control of that as he is in control of all things. And then he says, and you, although you were a wild olive shoot, not part of the original family of God, if we put it that way, ethnically speaking, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. God has shown mercy and grace to you and brought you into the family of God. That is also an act of God, of his mercy and grace. God alone saves. He has also said that in verse 6. It is by grace. It's not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. God's mercy and grace are by definition unearned and undeserved. So God is the one who saves. Anyone who holds to the belief that they had anything to do with their salvation is wildly off from Scripture, does not fully understand God's character nor the gospel, 
and is once again attempting to make things about them. You're not saved, you're not in relationship with God because you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, had an experience, because you're better, because you're more intelligent, because you're more moral than anyone else. If you are in a relationship with God, you're in a relationship with God because of his almighty power, grace, and mercy alone. He is the one who saves. That alone ought to humble us and help us to realize it's not about us, it's about him. But notice these two aspects of God, his mercy and his judgment. These also should produce humility. Notice verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Paul says to them in verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. You are recipients of the kindness of God, but do not allow that to cause you to become arrogant as if you deserved it, as if there's some reason that you should have been a recipient of the kindness of God. And in fact, he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches cut off because you do not support the root, but the root supports you. If you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in God, trusting in him and him alone for salvation, it is because someone told you that you were a sinner in need of a savior and someone told you about Jesus Christ, the righteous. You stand on the shoulders of those that have gone on before. And Paul says, therefore, the tree is not upside down, where the branches that come later are supporting the root system. No, the root system, those that have come before, they're the ones that support the branches. Hebrews 11 says that there's a great cloud of witnesses cheering on those who are following Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So many individuals from the past, Jew and Gentile, male and female, who have followed Jesus Christ and have done so with courage and bravery and winsomeness and wisdom, We are here as a result of their witness. So Paul says, do not get it twisted and do not become arrogant. And then he says in verse 19, yeah, well, you'll say, but those branches were broken off. God's done with them so that I could take their place. And Paul says, no, no. The reason they were broken off is because of unbelief and you stand fast through faith, but do not become proud the second time he warns us against pride, but fear. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you. Do not believe that because God is showing mercy and grace to you, that you can presume upon that. The reality is, if you are lost in unbelief, if you reject God, then God will do the same judgment to you that he has done to his nation of Israel. And so the mercy of God ought to produce humility in us. It should never produce in us pride. Yeah, God got a good deal when he got me. Obviously, he was going to save me. I'm awesome. That should never be our mindset, and that oftentimes, all too often, it is. The, the, the amazing mercy and grace of God ought to always produce in us thinking less about us. It's all about Him. He's the one who saves. But also His judgment should produce humility in us. Because, just because we are His children, does not mean that we can then sin freely and pretend as if He does not exist and it's all about us. Because if we, are, if we cease to believe, if we uh, continue in sin, then God, he says, will cut us off as well. If he did it to his own people, the Jews, then Gentiles as a people group do not believe that somehow you are immune to God's judgment. Both God's mercy, which is undeserved and unearned, and God's judgment, which comes as a result of unbelief, regardless of who we are or think ourselves to be, 
ought to produce in us humility. And then notice verses 23 and 24, God's amazing grace. God's grace truly is amazing. And even they, the nation of Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? God can make dead things alive. That's what he does every time he saves. And so no one is beyond God's grace and mercy. No one is apart from God's power. God's mercy and grace are amazing. And even his nation that has wholesalely rejected him as a people group and continues to reject him as a people group today are not beyond God's power to save. And in fact, as we will see next week, there is salvation coming for more than just a few Jews, but for many Jews. God is always at work and his grace is always amazing. And so God's actions ought to produce in us humility. It is not about us. It is never about us. So far too often we believe, well, we are where we are because of what we have done, what we brought to the table. And we fail to realize repeatedly that it's not about us, our talents, our gifts, our intellect, our morality. We are sinners, lost and undone, hopeless and helpless before a thrice holy God. And the only hope we have is his mercy and his grace. And we ought to rejoice in that and make much of him. And we ought to not be concerned as much about ourselves. I want to close with a series of quotes, or two quotes. A British journalist in the early part of the 1900s put this phrase, this little poem, into a British newspaper, a British publication. This journalist was an atheist communist and also anti-Semitic. So he put this phrase in, How odd of God to choose the Jews. And there were many replies, letters to the editor that came into that British publication, but perhaps the best came from Cecil Brown. But not so odd as those who choose a Jewish God, but spurn the Jews. It's not about us. It's not about dividing us based on our, based on our ethnicity or our language that we speak or our socioeconomic status we have found more and more shallow ways to divide ourselves as human beings and God calls us to unity, not around shallow things, but around ultimate things. And the only ultimate thing is him. And what he calls us to unify around is this. We are all sinners. And Paul has said this to the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, Jews, don't be up so high looking down your nose at everybody that because you are sons and daughters of Abraham, somehow you are no longer sinners in God's sight. He has spent a lot of ink in this letter to prove to the Jews that they are just as sinful as the Gentiles. And now he's going to flip it back on the Gentiles and say, hang on a second. Don't you get so high on yourselves that you look at the, uh, the divine rejection of the Jews as somehow meaning that you now have their privileged position and you are apart from the judgment of God. No, 
If you are anything, your only boast ought to be in God. It's not about you, it's about him. And the only hope we have is his mercy and his grace. And that is a message that we need to believe, practice, and proclaim to those around us. Let's look to him in prayer as we prepare for a time of communion together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And we are weary Weary, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually, because we see the body of Christ divided. We see our society divided more and more, and we see the reasons for that division being more and more shallow. Father, the reality is that we are simply sinners in need of a Savior. Father, if we have had our eyes opened to that, that is only by your grace, And apart from your grace, we would still be lost and undone in our sin. So, Father, help us to always be thankful for your grace, but to also never presume upon it. Father, each and every day, to praise your name, to thank you for all the many blessings that you give us. Father, there are those around us that are lost They are lonely, they are scared, they are frustrated, they are angry. There is much fear and frustration in our culture, in our society. They are looking for answers. And Father, we have the truth, not because we're smarter, not because we figured it out, not because we're more moral, not because we belong to a certain tribe or group, but simply because, Father, you have revealed it to us. And so we want to reveal it to everyone that we know. So they too can know and experience and live out and walk in the truth. And that truth, Father, is you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Father, may that be our heart's cry, our heart's desire. May we not fill our social media feeds with our public brand of politics or the latest controversy of the day so that our brand and our voice can be heard. and We can be established as right and on the right side of history and everybody else is wrong and our tribe is best. Every other tribe is worse. Father, none of this honors and glorifies you. It's not about us. It's all about you. And what honors and glorifies you is humility. So help us not look down our noses at anyone, Father. We know who we are without you, or we should. And help that inform then, Father, how we interact with those around us. We pray in your precious name. Amen.